We we turned on each other like like animals. This is not over. This is still happening right now. The limits of debate in this country are established before the debate even begins, and everyone else is marginalized. They're made to seem either to be communist or was some sort of disloyal person, a kook. There's a word, and now it's conspiracy. See, they've made that something that that is, that is should, should not be even entertained for a minute. That powerful people might get together and have a plan. Doesn't happen. You're a kook. You're a conspiracy buff. Tony, more than 30 people in Stephenville, Texas, say they saw a UFO. You believe him? Tony Kornheiser, believe him. Who do you think was up there against pro? And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. No commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules. At the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. And, of course, uh, as you know, if you're a frequent BOA Audio listener for the last month, no show. I've been away traveling, went up to Vermont, spent a couple weeks up there, loved it, had a fantastic time. And uh, our guest, well, we're back now, of course, with uh, the final eight episodes of Season 8. And starting it off with a really big name and a good friend of mine and somebody who shockingly hasn't been on the show in over four years for a pure paranormal discussion. So I'm really looking forward to this one. He is, of course, the author of UFOs and the National Security State, Volume 1 and Volume 2, A.D. After Disclosure, which he co-wrote with Bryce Zabel, and the new book that just came out this past January, UFOs for the 21st Century Mind. As I said in the description, he is a powerhouse UFO researcher and historian Richard Dolan, welcome back to BOA Audio. Hi Tim. Wow, it's I had no idea it was that many years since I've been on. We did the baseball shows, but uh, we hadn't done a like a, a paranormal or fringy type of political show in that many years. It's shocking. I know, I know. It's it's really uh, as I said before. It's kind of it's kind of nice though. Keeps it fresh because uh, it's been so long since we talked to you. We're probably not going to go over uh, too yeah, much. Yeah. Well, you know the thing terms. is, as I get older and older, I'm, I'm 52 now. I just had I just turned 52. And I realize, like, when you become old, like me now, uh, 10 years feels like one year. Yeah. Like, when you're young, one year feels like 10 years. Like, oh, my God, another year. I can't believe it. That's forever. But as you get older, you think, oh, four years, that that feels like last week. And honestly, it often does. I had no idea it was that long. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. I I should double check, but I'm about 99% sure it's been for you. probably right. Um, so now, as I said, I was doing a little traveling uh, up to up to Vermont, but you you were doing some extensive traveling over the last month. Tell me about this Canadian trip because it sounds really remarkable. Well, it was quite fascinating. This was organized by two uh, men out of Toronto, Chris Rusak and David Whitehead, uh, both who became very very good friends of mine during the course of this uh, trip. What they did is they organized a modern knowledge tour. That was the name of it. They based it around uh, two primary speakers, myself and Michael Tellinger, who's South African and has done a lot of work on ancient archaeological uh, sites down there, which are fascinating, and uh, much more. So the two of us are basically the headliners, and then it was a 12-city tour from Halifax 
on the east coast of Vancouver, out on the west coast, over 4,000 miles. And along the way, there were other guest speakers in various cities who um, accompanied us. Uh, some of them were very well-known people like Stanton Friedman and Linda Moulton Howe, Carrie Cassidy, and a number of other um, individuals who may not be quite as well-known in the alternative research field, but who are really excellent. Uh, everything from GMOs to UFOs is how we were kind of putting <laughs> it for a while. And, um, yeah, it was a, a month-long trip in an RV, no less. So yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the interesting part. So you were, you were in the RV around. traveling across Canada? That's correct, yeah. yeah what was that like? Many nights. So on some of the nicer evenings, I was able to get a motel. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, for a lot of the time, it, it'd sleep right in the RV, sometimes while we were driving in the middle of the night trying to make our next gig in, the, in you know, 9 a.m. Um, and there were many nights. Honestly, it was taxing. It was hmm. nearly four weeks uh, uh, that part, it w this wasn't like nice hotel, comfy, you know. Right, right. Uh, nothing yeah. like that. It was, um, it was, it was demanding in that way. But on the other hand, it was, it was fascinating, and I met so many brilliant, wonderful, fascinating people. Uh, that's the great thing about the travel is, is meeting people who have so much to teach you, and um, I, I, I can never say too much about that. That's mm. very important for me. Well, it's interesting. What, what, what were the, what were the folks who came out to these events like? What was, what was really you know, grinding their gears? What do they want to talk about? What, you know, well, what was in their minds? I don't think that Canadians have fundamentally different concerns about, uh, the, you know, the big picture than what most Americans do, to be perfectly honest with you. Mm -hmm. there, uh, you've got a certain number of people who are fascinated by UFO phenomenon, as you have in the United States. You have a certain number of people who are very worked up over uh, globalization, um, you know, Elite Illuminati, Bilderberg, however you want to put that yeah. that whole nexus. There's a lot of people interested in that. Uh, you have a lot of environmental issues going on. GMO issues are, have become very, very big in Canada as in the U.S. And I think you know, as we as we move forward through these years, we're seeing that individuals who are interested in one of these issues are often very likely to be interested in other of, of you know comparable types of issues. Uh, whether it's 9/11, a lot of a lot of 9/11 researchers in Canada. Really? And on, yeah, yeah, yeah. Weird. Quite, quite a few who are very knowledgeable about this, and, and they hmm. come to the UFO lectures that I give. Uh, so um, I would say that uh, overall, that, that the quality of the people is very comparable to everything I would see in the U.S. or um, or in Europe, for that matter. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I'm surprised about the 9/11 part. Well, it's one thing I've I've been dismayed because I got into this right after 9/11. I've been dismayed by how it's kind of it was really hot there for a while, but now it's really, I just never really got over the hump, if you will, you know? It does seem that it's kind of just died. It just kind of died. And um, I don't really think it has. I think, I mean, there's still very active 9-11 researchers out there. Oh, yeah. Who, obviously. But uh, it, it's certainly dead in any kind of mainstream kind of, you know, major media uh, discussion. It's just, it's not there. But, of course, it was really never it's never kind of um, been big, and you, know, you don't hear it on Fox News or CBS. Right, or right. But I agree. I mean, it's, we're 13 years now into this nightmare of this post-9/11 world. That's, um, I mean, all but essentially come out as a kind of global police state, a U.S. police state, and um, and that the justification for this, especially with the, the Edward Snowden revelations, you know, have really put an exclamation point on this that people have no privacy. They have no privacy. And what is the justification for it? Well, the justification implicitly is 
even if it's not stated openly. Mm. There are terrorists. They took down the Twin Towers. They did all of this. And, and even if that were true, even if it's like the grand conspiracy of Osama bin Laden and his uh, ragtag guys from al-Qaeda hiding out in his, his bungalow in Afghanistan and they pull all this off. If you really want to believe that, <laughs> all right, fine. Right, right. You want to go there. Even so, uh, can anyone really believe that it's justifiable to create the, the global, the, the U.S. surveillance state that has been created now with um, NSA not only reading emails of so-called targeted individuals and who qualifies as targeted, but as we've just learned, 90%, 90% of the people who have been observed by NSA are not even targeted individuals. And what's more, we learned through more of Edward Snowden's revelations, that uh, a lot of this concerns really private stuff, like people taking naked selfies of themselves or their girlfriend or boyfriend, or uh, you know, sex chat on Skype, or who knows what else. NSA's, <laughs> yeah. NSA is monitoring this. They got all that stuff, folks. Well, I'll guarantee you there's NSA people there getting off on it, thinking, oh, yeah, i got a great gig tonight. Let's see what, uh, what this, this couple is up to again. Yeah. Uh, guaranteed. I mean, does anyone honestly doubt this? So this is what's become of the United States government. It's, it is literally on par with the East German government of the 1980s and 70s of the old Soviet state in terms of surveillance. That is exactly what we have become. And what is the justification for it? 9-11? That is the justification. Hmm. And that is, aside from being the fact that 9-11 is based on a fundamental lie, but even if one wants to accept it, what has happened since 9-11, none of that can be justified, even on the basis of the destruction of the World Trade Center and the attack on the Pentagon. This is totally disproportionate. It's obscene. Well, it's, it's a frightening world we live in nowadays. It's, it feels like things are getting a little out of control. Uh, it's frightening because we have a, a government police state yeah. That's making us right. I mean, when I see a cop, I grew up in a family of New York City cops. My dad was a, a police officer. He's a tough guy, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for those people. I went to police picnics. Uh, they used to let me play ball, uh, baseball with them when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, they're great guys. Um, today, I asked my father a year ago. Um, he's in Florida now, and, you know, he's still around, and I said, hey, you know, is it me, Dad? Or are cops just more likely to be assholes today than they were in your day? That's exactly what I said to him. He said, no, I think you're right. And um, when I see a cop today, I don't feel safe. I feel paranoid. Right, yeah. I, I don't feel safe when I see a police officer. I, I, I feel like they don't even exist for my public safety, honestly. They don't. Hmm. What do they exist for? To take, to take my money with speeding tickets and to uh, basically, on the orders of... Uh, their higher-ups to lock up non-violent offenders on the bogus drug charges so that they can go to privatized prisons and make clothes for Target. So it can say, made in America. So we can compete with China. A lot of America's industrial labor is prison labor. Really? Pri yeah, privatized prisons. This is a huge scandal. This is an awful, awful thing. And this is, this is our country. Yeah. And this is not supposed to be our country. And the only reason this can fly at all is because it's all under the radar. No one... Really, there's not a big public discussion on this stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, they keep everyone everyone distracted with uh, bread and circus, as they say, you know, yeah. so people just don't. Do you think someday, I was thinking about this, actually, when I was thinking about us uh, talking here, especially kind of with the with the idea of this breakaway civilization. We'll kind of get into that in a minute, but sure. do, you, do you think someday we'll, 
uh, regardless of whatever happens, that we'll, that we'll kind of like get out of this mess and look back and real, people will realize how, how obscene the, the world we're living in was? has to be. I, I cannot, and in fact, maybe this is an act of will, I will not believe that we're going to be in this situation forever. I just can't think it can be like this. Hmm. There, I mean, look, if there's one thing we can always know from human society is that we change, we evolve, everything goes through changes. Nothing is stable, and we are in the most unstable period of human history that I, I can imagine. The amount of change we're going through is unrivaled by any any prior history, um, period of history. So I can't think we're going to stay the same. Something is going to change. Now, whether it'll become a, a global surveillance state, a global police state in which everyone is basically under the boot, maybe that'll happen. But even that, I don't think, can happen forever. Right. But it may not happen. There may be a break. Um, we are developing our own tools. We have a global communication system that's in place that did not exist 20 years ago. Yes, there are attempts by the U.S. government to turn the Internet into basically television through multiple-tiered uh, service and all of that. Hmm. But, but um, it's, you know, end of net neutrality. Right, right. It happens. But right now we've got a truly free Internet for, for the most part. And uh, that's a tremendous tool for people. Uh, so I think, you know, we're able to share information in ways that were just not conceivable a generation ago. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. It would never rule, rule us out in terms of, Fighting, uh, fighting the good fight, and, and winning some points for freedom. Mm, mm. Well, I was reading. Uh, I read Animal Farm while I was on vacation, and oh, what a great book! Oh, it's fantastic. And there was a couple of essays in the beginning by uh, scholars or what have you uh, about the book and sort of the time it was written. And one of them made an interesting point that it was that the, the that Orwell and the other writers of the time, I think Huxley was one of them, maybe that the guy mentioned with right. they, they, they envisioned a future that was obviously uh a lot like ours, but even more uh clamped down. And although the the author kind of dismissed the idea that, that uh we're living in any kind of difficult world. I think that the uh, article was written maybe in the eighties. Um uh, well, right. the the point I guess I'm trying to make is what the author made is that the 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 writers in question um, uh, I guess over over uh, it didn't take into account the human fallibility of people that want to take over the world. I guess is the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Typical academic argument. <laughs> and honestly, it's just so typical of the eggheads in academia. I, I used to hear this for years and years. Well, grand conspiracies can't happen because people screw up and they can't keep secrets and blah blah blah. You know what? That's why they call it the ivory tower. Because a lot of these people, they don't get out much. And hmm. uh, I honestly think, I don't think they have a clue. Some of them, some of them do. Uh, but uh, no, look, look where we are now. So in the 1980s, when this academician was writing about Orwell, yeah, I mean, I remember the 80s. I was a young guy. And, and um, there was, uh, you know, we were not living in a totalitarian state. No, by any means. But now, fast forward another 30 years, and things things are way more Orwellian than mm. they were in 1985, 1984, yeah. the real 1984, vastly more. Uh, but it's still not a situation where, um, I mean, think about it, you know, in Orwell's 1984, so just switch over to that, the TV would watch you, right. or uh, something would be monitoring. Uh, well, we have that. <laughs> yeah. It's not your TV. It's your, it's your webcam on your on your computer. Hmm. And the NSA absolutely 
monitors people through their webcam, and we know this. This has been confirmed. So there's a thing right there. That's pretty darn scary. And in terms of having all of your communications, monitoring everything, lying, ministry of truth, uh, you know, reinventing, rewriting history. We see this all the time with whitewashing and spin. Uh, he who controls the past controls the future. Mm. And I, I really would suggest that we are in a vastly more Orwellian period than we were in the year 1984, the title of George Orwell's great book, on the future. So um, it only just shows that, you know, it took a little longer for the world to catch up to Orwell's vision, or it just shows how far ahead Orwell really was in seeing it. And Huxley, too, by the way, with mm. Brave New World, uh, there's a lot of truth in, uh, in Huxley's vision, which is actually, in a lot of ways, Huxley was, was more... Uh, more right on. I mean, Orwell's vision of the future is kind of like a Stalinism, you know, with high tech, essentially, yeah. and it's heavy-handed. Whereas uh, Huxley, it's, you know, people are seduced by the, the New World Order, and they take drugs, they take this thing called Soma, which makes them very happy, and they accept their slavery, and they're, I mean, that sounds a lot like, uh, you know, a lot of aspects of Western and modern society, for mm. sure. Um, and also the fact that, uh, I, if I'm recalling Huxley correctly, people were sort of artificially engineered biologically. There were different types of people who would be suitable for different types of, uh, of tasks. And we are getting very close to that capability through manipulation of the human genome. Does one honestly think it's impossible in another 20, 30, 50, 100 years for there to be truly custom-designed human beings? a master race, a slave race. That sounds crazy, but it's the, the capabilities absolutely are going to be there. Yeah, it's spooky stuff. Now, um, I guess to speak up a little bit or move away from the fan? All right, let me turn off. i got air conditioner on, so let's turn that thing off. There we go. All right. How's that? That's great. That's great, because uh, someone mentioned it in the chat, and I can already envision the email. No, sorry about that. It's, it's all, all right. right. It's all right. I'll, I'll put my quiet fan on, and we'll be, we'll be okay. It's kind of hot here. It's yeah, it's getting hot here. In the but northeast, it, but um, it's a little rough. But uh, it's the summertime. Snow. Hey, before you know, we'll be complaining about snow. Don't worry. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, so this breakaway civilization—it's uh, you, you first kind of mentioned it in uh, UFOs and National Security State Volume Two. I remember really uh, coming away yeah, from that right. book with that uh, right. such a profound idea. And of course, you've expanded on it and really sort of dug into it over the last few years. Talk a little bit, sort of set people up with this idea here, so yes. we can get into it. Absolutely. What, what's been gratifying to me I've, um, is that I just I hear a lot of other people talking about it. I hear it on Alex Jones's show, uh, of all places. It would be nice if Alex would have me on his show so I could talk to him about it. <laughs> I think he's afraid of having a UFO researcher on his show. I actually think so. But uh, the idea of a breakaway civilization, think of, uh, think of the black budget world on steroids with ET technology tossed in there, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, so, for instance, we, we know... We know for sure that within the NSA, for instance, uh, the NSA, which for the first more than 10 years of its existence was absolutely, totally secret. No one knew of the existence of the NSA. In fact, its nickname was for NSA was no such agency. Uh, that the NSA during that period of time actually had the best computers in the world. Oh, wow. Uh, by the early 1960s, they, um, I, I know this because I had a long chat with a, a, a civilian scientist who was with the NSA in the 1960s. And he said circa 1964-65, the NSA had, a, had computers with clock speeds of 650 megahertz. Now, today that's very slow. Uh, 
but that clock speed was not reached by the consumer market until the year 2000, so about 35 years later. NSA, you could say, was 35 years ahead of the rest of the world. And in 1965, I mean, there were no personal computers. So, and this was an agency that no one knew about. And that's pretty remarkable. So now, keep that in mind. And now, think of UFO phenomenon. Think of, not just UFOs, but think of crash retrievals. This is still, to this day, at times a controversial subject among some researchers, but I think the evidence for crash retrievals of exotic technology is overwhelming. And if you go on that basis, that military groups, U.S. military in particular, have recovered technology that did not originate from our civilization. Let's just assume that for a moment. Mm -hmm. I think it's true. Now you have to assume, okay, they are studying it. They, and they're not just going to be sitting on their hands looking at it. They're going to try to replicate it, obviously. How do you replicate it? Well, you go through what we call black budget channels. That is, you create private funding for it, funding that Congress doesn't know about, that the people don't know about. And it goes through private contractors, obviously, and who becomes the owner of this technology. There's a good question for you. Is it, is it the Army? Is it the Air Force? Is it Lockheed? Is it General Electric, right? Well, increasingly, it becomes privatized. This is the way the black budget world does work. So let's take it further. So in that world, you've got these brilliant scientists, and they're tasked with understanding this exotic piece of technology, and they don't even necessarily know where it came from. They're just told to study the oh, electromagnetic properties of this or uh, a way to achieve what might be called uh, fiber optics, and, and on and on and on. Hmm. And so let's say they come up with some nifty ideas, and they create fiber optics, or they create high tensile fibers or lasers or what have you, or better integrated circuits, or who knows. Yeah. So that's a great thing because that's a money maker and everyone's happy and they can, uh, you know, feed the war machine and so forth. But what if they come up with ideas that are even better than that? Ideas that are like energy breakthroughs, so something that's better than petroleum. Just think about it. Even a 10-year-old child looking at a, the movement of a flying saucer across the sky, silent, instant acceleration, zigzagging, whatever, they're going to know that's not being fueled by fossil fuels. Right. That's not petroleum. Whatever the energy source is, it's better than that. So clearly, 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 clearly there is an energy, there is a new energy paradigm implicit in the UFO phenomenon. And if these scientists in the black budget world came up with that, if they figured it out ever, there is no way, not one chance, that they would be allowed simply to share that with the rest of the world. Because that would take down the petroleum industry, that would take down the entire financial structure that supports human civilization on planet Earth. Right, right, right. And replace it with something maybe better, probably better, yeah, but also yeah. out, of, out of control of those people who've got the control. So what happens to it? Well, these people would still be told, okay, well, we're not going to let this out, but you're going to continue to research it, and we're going to classify this research. So anyone in the outside world who stumbles into this, that's classified, and they're not going to be allowed we will not let them. There are thousands and thousands of classified patents in the United States and elsewhere. And this is one of the key reasons. So what we in the black budget world would keep doing is we'd keep working our science, preventing the rest of the world from attaining that science because it wouldn't be allowed. Would we build our own flying saucers at some point? Could we? If we develop electrogravitics or new energy sources, is this really impossible? Well, there are leaks galore indicate this, and the logic indicates it. And I think that's exactly what's happened. 
So if they have a breakthrough in technology, that means they're able to go off planet. That means they're able to have interactions maybe with other beings that ordinarily we wouldn't be able to have. It would mean that they have a different view of the world and of the universe and a different understanding of the place of human beings in the cosmos. Hmm. All of these things, I would suggest, are characteristic of a separate civilization, a, break, a civilization that's broken away from our own, hence a breakaway civilization, yeah. the core of the idea. Now, there's a lot that I don't know about these people. I'm not part of that <laughs> civilization. They haven't let me into any of their club meetings, so I can't <laughs> tell you. But I do, I suspect that they're not necessarily all living on Mars in some alternative three setting. They're probably living here on Earth, which is, I suspect, where the real action is anyway. But they may be on Mars for Atlanta. They may be on the back side of the moon. There's a lot of fascinating indications regarding the moon, as a matter of fact. Uh, this is something I just, uh, I've been looking into again recently. So with this breakaway civilization, though, are we talking about like the one percenters? Where do they, where do those, where, you know, that super rich? Yeah, well, I think that's a great question because we have to understand the whole, the whole thing and we've got to be able to piece the whole thing together. If it doesn't make sense, then there's something wrong with that picture. So I ask myself the same question. And what I think we are seeing is financially, we are seeing a breakaway civilization financially. Hmm. Yeah. Not sure, uh, I think, when we mean 1%, that's shorthand for the 1% of the 1% of the 1% at the right. top. Um, <clears throat> I mean, the top 1% of wealth owners, if someone has $50 million, they can be my guest, I don't care. That means they have a nicer car and a nicer house than I do. Fine, let them. But when you're talking about someone who's got $50 billion, yeah. Now, that's, that's a factor of a 1,000, and that's serious power and serious wealth, and those are the people who control entire political systems and infrastructures. $50 million, honestly, that just means you're rich. Right, right. Be my guest. Be rich. I, I'm totally cool with that. $50 billion <laughs> is a different order of magnitude, and those are the people, really, we, we have to look at in terms of we're really managing or directing uh, the course of the infrastructure of our world. And what we're seeing in terms of breakaway financial structure, we're seeing it happen before our eyes. And things like, um, well, it started years ago with NAFTA and um, the World Trade Organization and GATT, and uh, now what we're seeing in the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, and we're seeing in what's called TAFTA, that is the Transatlantic Free Trade Agreement. In other words, we're seeing it in all of these global treaties, economic treaties, that go beyond, that make basically parliaments and congresses irrelevant, where you're creating a global structure that's nailing down international uh, copyright, international uh, intellectual property, all kinds of trade laws, all kinds of control over natural resources. All of these are leaving the hands of the people who elect their representatives and are going into these international organizations and treaties which are beyond control, which are designed by the top 50, 100 corporations in the world and which are really controlled by the very top few powerful people in the world. They're really creating a new legal system globally right before our very eyes, and no one's talking about it, in which they are literally breaking away from traditional uh, sovereignty and ideas of sovereignty that people like to have, you know. I, I vote for my member of Congress and blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah. none of that really is, is applicable anymore. It's all going away. I, I liken the United States and really all countries to a dead body on the side of the road. So you're walking along the road, right, and you see this dead guy, 
and you, um, you know, you poke him with a stick, and you think, hmm, he's not moving. He's probably dead. But then you think, oh, but he's wearing the suit I saw on him last week. He's probably fine. Um, the suit is our formal institution, the President, Congress, Supreme Court, the clothing. You know, it's like that movie Weekend at Bernie's. Remember Bernie? Oh, Poor yeah. Bernie dies, and they have the party, and they trot him around, and put the sunglasses on, <laughs> and it's a great comedy. But that's actually, like, sadly, that in a lot of ways is our country. We have become Weekend at Bernie's in the sense that the body's dead. The clothing is still there. And what has actually taken over is a completely new body. And it, it goes unacknowledged. So I think now back to the connection with the, the breakaway civilization, the radical technology and all of this. Um, piecing some of this together, we know that when you look at what we call special access programs, black budget programs, that it appears that the dominant power in those programs is not like the U.S. Pentagon and the D Department of Defense and those guys. Mm -hmm. They are they are increasingly seen as liaisons and that the real power are the corporations that run them, like Lockheed, like Boeing, like Raytheon, like General Dynamics. Yeah. They're, they're the guys in charge, and they are owned by whom? They're owned by the top 1% of the 1% of the 1%. Mm -hmm. So what it looks like to me is that this secret in which the UFO phenomenon is also contained is controlled by a privatized group which is increasingly internationalized, and by the way, I had a conversation some years ago with a brilliant man, absolutely top-rate intellectual man who was with CIA for many years and used to give briefings to U.S. presidents on certain things. And it's kind of neat for me that I get to chat with him every so often. This is a man who, um, if I ask him a question, he'll qualify it five or six different ways before he gives me his precise, exact answer. He's very meticulous. <laughs> and at one point, um, he said to me, this is, this is a really telling thing, that after he retired, because he, he has a fascination with the UFO phenomenon, mm -hmm. a lot of knowledge of it, and he said, in my retirement, I have had conversations with 18 former, and then there's one of three positions, former presidents, CIA directors, or secretaries of defense. Wow. So 18 of those guys. These are the people at the top rung Mm -hmm. of the American national security empire, basically, right? Yeah, they, got, they, they have access to the button. CIA, exactly. So he had conversations one-on-one -on -one with 18 of these people about UFO slash ET. Imagine being a fly on that one. <laughs> so he said, the way that they discussed this with me fell into three basic categories. Category number one was maybe three or four of them said essentially, UFOs, pff, that's crazy. Don't waste your time with such nonsense. Category two was at the opposite end of the spectrum, and that was almost as many. It was like he said two or three. That's exactly what he said, two or three. Mm -hmm. He said, two or three said to me, oh, yes, I was briefed on that matter also. So they had some knowledge about it. He said, by far the largest group were people who said, Oh, UFOs. I have been trying to get information about this, and I haven't gotten anything. What do you know? Maybe we can share information. <laughs> oh, wow. So, now, so that what he was implying is that at the very top rung of the formal structure of power in the United States, most of those people are not briefed on this. 
most of them are out of the loop. And there is a loop, but they're not in it. So then that prompted me to ask this man. Who's in the loop? Who, right, who's, exactly. <laughs> he said, well, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? He said, look, I mean, I, I said, are we talking like the Bilderbergers? Are we talking pri- private financial groups? He says, yes, that's what I assume. He wouldn't give me an exact hmm. answer. Yeah. He was very, very careful. He made, I'm sure he knows a lot more than he was letting on to me. But what he strongly implied is that we're talking powerful interests behind the presidency. And, of course, anyone now who looks at the political system today who's got half a brain in their head, they understand that the president is a figurehead. He's a puppet. Whether his name is Obama or Bush before him or Clinton before him or Bush before him or Reagan before him, they're all. These are people who are put in there. And they're, they are literally, in some cases, actors. But they're pitchmen. That's what their job is. Yeah. So there's a power behind them, and and that goes for the UFO phenomenon. So what we're talking about is the death. We're talking about the death of nation states ultimately, hmm. um, in the form of the power that's behind the scenes, it's, and 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 that's very effective for them because, you know, for those people who really are trying to guide the world in the direction they want it to go, their attitude is. Nations are messy. Separate national laws are inconvenient. We need a global currency, in their opinion. We need, you know, kind of a unified direction for humanity. This is exactly what they want. I'm not saying I want it. I don't want that. <laughs> but that's what they want. <laughs> right, right. And and so if they're going to go through that, they realize it's a very unpopular position. So, of course, they're going to go about, go about it quietly. And slowly. And if they control the major media, which, of course, they do, they're not going to promote it through that. If they manage most of the political actors in most countries, which they do, they're not going to have those people talk about it. So this, or the academic community, which is all tied into it. It's all tied into it. Yeah. So it's left to outsiders like, like you and me and other researchers who are outside of that matrix, who are trying to get the attention of the rest of the world saying, hey, look what's going on here. There's some serious, um, serious developments going on, and we need to address them. Well, it's scary too, because you know I said the one percenters, and it's like you saw those protests. That's where the whole thing really kind of came from—the one percenter yeah. name. It's like right. it, the scary part too is even the general public is now just unrest about this, about this divide of power and money. And it's like I was saying earlier, it's like if we get out of this mess, maybe we'll look back and realize how. You know how maybe how how the people who lived in Germany during during World War II didn't realize how crazy it was kind oh, yeah. of thing. So it's it's I, scary I, that there's this unrest. It's like even without the some of these people are just angry that that the, these people are so rich and the power divide. They don't have any care about UFOs or secret technology or anything like that. So it's this whole thing is like feels like it's teetering. I agree with you. The thing about the UFOs, a lot of people don't appreciate just why the UFO phenomenon is so significant. And I and I I never tire of telling this to people. This is important. Hmm. You talk about the black budget. You talk about theft of money. The UFO phenomenon is significant in all of this. It, it's not trivial. Go back again to the beginnings of the black budget culture that has really taken over the United States. Go back to the 1940s. Go back to Roswell. All right, so if you're Harry Truman and, and all of this new information is presented to you that, my goodness, we've recovered alien technology, you can't just tell the world. You have to create a program that's going to study this, that's going to cost money, a lot of money, actually, 
and you can't just tell Congress. So you must create a black budget. You must, in other words, create secret spending. And, of course, spending eventually becomes illegal through narco-trafficking and financial foreign banking fraud and all of that, which they do. But, it cre- but the UFO phenomenon is, is one of the key instigators of what has become this black budget empire. And not only that, people need to understand that because of the UFO phenomenon, our future is being held hostage. Hmm. What do I mean by that? I'm, I am talking about technological breakthroughs that are clearly evident in any UFO report you care to read. There is some technology that is all around us, and this is possible for human beings to have, but we are prevented from having it because you have a black budget world Hmm. that has classified this. We are not allowed to have it. So we are basically kept in this petroleum-dominated paradigm of financial control, which is all based on petroleum, which is one of the foundations for all of the wars that we have and all of the misery that we're feeling right now and all the toxicity and pollution and all the other awful things that are happening. I'm not saying that lifting the veil on the UFO secret is going to fix every problem we have. I certainly don't think that that's the case. I think human beings are problematic to begin with. <laughs> but I do think that it would, it would help us in many important ways. I think it would break a logjam of sorts, an intellectual logjam that, that yeah. we're, we're at right that, now. That's what AD After Disclosure was really all about when I wrote that book with Bryce Sable. That was our adventure in, in exploring how the end of UFO secrecy really might liberate not just the human infrastructure but the human mind. Right, right. And, and the, the, the funny part is it has very little to do with, with aliens when you think about it. It's, uh, it's really about the humans and, and their intense desire to con, con keep the control over all the other humans. I agree, um, although I, I, I try not to forget that there are these other beings hmm. that appear to be interacting with us here on Earth and interacting with maybe other life forms on Earth as well. They have an interest in Earth, and if I were an alien visiting Earth, I would have an interest in Earth. This is an incredible world. We've got an incredible abundance of a variety of DNA and different types of life forms and resources. I mean, it's exciting. This is Earth. We've got great things going on here. And then there's humanity. And often we tend to, to dismiss ourselves and dismiss our importance. But I think human beings are fascinating. And we might really be the best soap opera in this part of the galaxy, for all I know. <laughs> They may be looking at us thinking, ah, these, these humans are about to jump into the new level of development technologically, uh, where they were just playing with, with, you know, wooden carts and horses and things like that. Now they're actually about to have advanced nanotech and advanced AI. They may be an, a real hassle. <laughs> they may be an issue in the next hundred years. Of course, they're going to be looking at us. Hmm. So, I, you know, I don't rule out that there has been manipulation by them. If I were an alien looking at humanity, I might think um, I'd want to get my people inserted into their infrastructure to make sure that I manage it the way I want. Mm, That's an interesting idea. What's to stop? You know, we we have this idea, a lot of people have this idea anyway, that that advanced aliens who can travel through the stars must be peaceful because they would have destroyed themselves by now. I hear this all the time. I'm not persuaded. There is nothing inherently illogical about the idea of interstellar economic hitmen. You know, guys who go <laughs> exploiting like, uh, what was that, the Borg on the old Star Trek series, you know. Yeah. Basically, uh, cultures that are users. Why is that impossible? Why, uh, 
if they have any kind of remnant of their biological heritage, then they might be predators, right? They might be, uh, all life forms have to find a way to eat. They have an imperative. Right, right. They're, they're, they're concerned with preserving their own species, yeah, yeah. just like so humans I, are. I think it would be rather foolish to just throw that idea out uh, a priori, thinking, oh, no, well, they must be peaceful. Um, and one hears this all too frequently. So anyway, my point is simply, I agree with you. I think the human controllers of the secret are our greatest, probably our greatest immediate threat. And it may be that these other beings are generally peaceful. It may be. It's entirely possible. Or it may more likely be to me that they just don't really give a shit because they're just too far ahead right. wherever they are and humanity is maybe a, a small little you know, barely noticeable, that's possible as well. Hmm. So that they may not be here to squash us. I don't know what their motives are. But, uh, you know, they're, they're a factor. Hmm. They are a factor. Absolutely, yeah. Well, this is another issue that I've been sort of toying with lately. Uh, I talked about it toward the end of the year uh, when I was looking back on the on the past year, especially the citizen hearing on disclosure. It's, yeah. I think ufology, well, the UFO phenomenon itself has a problem, I think, because uh, like the old commercial for the the shampoo was uh, you know you never get a second chance to make a first impression <laughs> I feel like the UFOs they, they've made their first impression now and, and now for those of us in the UFO community who are trying to educate people and, and sort of get them on board looking at the mystery uh, you have to overcome that that difficult first impression where it seems like that, as you were saying the guy who talked to all those people a lot of people would just dismiss it out of hand yeah Right. Um, what, what, what guy who talked to those people? Um, oh, the oh, uh, your friend there. Yeah, yeah, guy. Right, right. Exactly. A number of them did. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. There's, we've got fifty, sixty, seventy years now of cultural baggage hmm. um, associated with this phenomenon. One thing that I've often wondered, I've asked myself this: is if, let's pretend that there was no UFO phenomenon or no noticeable phenomenon until this year, until 2014. Okay. Like, what, so there was, no one knew about Roswell, no one knew about flying saucers in the 1940s and 50s, and none of that existed. And then just pretend, just pretend that someone switched on the UFO phenomenon to where it is today, right now. In other words, if you go online looking for UFO reports, you go to the major websites, the National UFO Reporting Network, the um, MUFON website, some of the Canadian sources... In one year, the total for North American UFO reports nowadays is up to 15,000 reports per year. Wow. No joke. 15,000. 15,000 UFO reports. I'm not saying they're all alien craft, clearly, hmm. but there's a, some of these are quite detailed. Yeah, even, so if, even, if, even if just like what 1% was, was yeah. an alien, that's so like it's, 150. 15,000 is about 40 a day, I think. So pretend that we have no phenomenon all these years, and that suddenly someone switches the lights on and we're, we're getting 15,000 of these reports a year. Imagine how that would, like, what, how would that affect our media and our, our worldview and our consciousness today? I wonder. Would it be dismissed? Would people be talking about it? Would people be assuming, oh, my God, did we create a, uh, some radical technology? Are there aliens here? I mean, all of those questions would be asked. Hmm. And they would probably have seeped into the mainstream because it would be a new thing. Yeah, the mainstream would love that. They would, but then the question would be, where would they go with it? 
And I don't know. I don't know if it would be different today than it was in the 1940s. Uh, I know, it's just, it's just a thought. I yeah, mean, I, I think it would be better, honestly. I think it would be better just because the the media is so pervasive and all-enveloping that, you know, we have the old expression in Syracuse, you got to feed the goat. You know, you always got to yep. come up with something new to, to put out there, and I well, think they would love it. I don't know about the corporate media. I think the hmm. alternative media, guys like yourself, and I have a weekly radio show, I'd be talking about it. But I think... Um, I don't know about I don't know about NBC. <laughs> yeah, I don't know actually. I'm Only just sure. because they, they'd want to keep it all a secret. So then it'd be like this whole. We I guess we'd see sort of a replay of uh, the 50s kind of attitude. But yeah, but I mean, back in 1950, there were uh, I mean, roughly about a, up to uh, 1,000 reports a year. The biggest year of reports for Project Blue Book back in those days was 1,500. That was in 1952. That was a huge year. There were many years where there were like 500 reports in the whole year. But you go from that, now we have 15,000. I mean, it's just a vast qualitative and quantitative jump. So it just seems to me, I'm only mentioning this little hypothetical just to get people thinking about how we've become sort of numbed to the year, year in, year out reality of UFO phenomenon. We've kind of like, we've forgotten about it. Hmm. But if it, if it had just would be to turn on like right now, there would be a lot of people getting worked up over it because it's it's going full steam every year. It does not let up. Hmm. Well, how do you change – you're right about taking it for granted in a way, but how do you, I guess how do you change that paradigm? How do you get people – how do you overcome all these years of cultural baggage? You know, it's oh a question goodness, I've I, struggled with, so, you know, turn to you for help. <laughs> I, I'm doing what little I'm able to do. I write books. I talk to people. I'm, I try fearlessly to – to speak the truth as I understand it. Um, that's what I try to do. I'm in the process of uh, revamping my webpage, which I've not been happy with for several years. And it, by the end of the week, by the way, it's going to be very nice. So I'll do what I can do, but really what, what changes is that going to make in the larger culture? You know, 14 years ago when I published my very first book, uh, the first volume of UFOs in the National Security State, I, um, I didn't really think that I was naive enough to think that I would that this book would, would break the secrecy. But I will admit, like, in the course of writing that book, I thought, maybe I'll get lucky. Maybe this will be the book that will crack the wall of secrecy and, and open it up. Because I wanted to create a book that was very meticulously researched, that was unarguable against it, you know. Hmm. And I think I, I did a reasonable job at that. But, of course, that didn't, <laughs> that didn't make a dent in the least in the culture of secrecy. Yeah. In our mainstream, I mean, not at all. It didn't even register, I think. Um, so what would it take? Well, the, the good news is that we're in an era now of uh, things like WikiLeaks. And um, we're in an era where people can grab digital data, hmm. whether legally or not is irrelevant, frankly. They can grab that digital data and they can toss it out to the world and say, look at this, look at all this illegality. Whether it's Bradley Manning or Chelsea Manning or Edward Snowden or or researchers and journalists like Glenn Greenwald or many many other people out there, whistleblowers, those people are out there, and they are grabbing information and they are putting it out there. This is a symptom of the new era in which we live. This is not an anomaly. This is the new reality, mm. not going away. So where are we going to be in another ten years? Another twenty years with this? It's going to be. It's hard to predict. But I think that it's – I would be surprised if we did not have an entire new slew of revelations 
that would um, maybe generate some real political change. Regarding UFOs? Yeah, regarding UFOs, um, for starters, maybe even regarding 9-11. Hmm. Maybe well, even something as, as seemingly mundane as the Kennedy assassination. Uh, that, that could be actually a quite revolutionary, radical thing if the truth on that were to come out in full. Yeah. Well, do you, do you think the UFO secret's so kept so secret that they don't actually have a, sort of the paper trail of sorts nowadays, or, or do you think it's out there? But, cause Great you, question. Yeah, go ahead. There was a, there's an old quote from a former director of the CIA, Richard Helms. He ran the agency back in the 60s and 70s. And um, Richard Helms once said, the first rule in keeping secrets is nothing on paper. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is an old, old rule from the intelligence world, obviously. Uh, the paper trail, in many ways, has gone cold. We, in our nation, we were very lucky, very lucky with the advent of the Freedom of Information Act, which is kind of gutted in a lot of ways these days for our purposes. But during the Jimmy Carter years, during the late 70s, thank you, President Carter, we had... Um, the vast majority of documents relating to UFOs that we have today came out during the Carter administration, if you can believe it. So that's great for Jimmy Carter, and that's really lousy for every subsequent president. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's not that the spigot's been completely shut off, but it's been closed off a lot. Mm. And so what was once a, like a nice little flow has become a, a trickle. So the, and, and now with everything being stored electronically, you're not getting a lot of these printed documents. It's very easy for electronic data to be kept out of the loop. And um, I spoke to a couple of, uh, like, Washington insiders who know about classified documents, and one of them explained to me, he said, look, it's the easiest thing to keep a a document impervious impervious to a FOIA request uh, rather than declassify it or, or have it available for declassification. You simply... Uh, keep it in circulation as a, as a kind of working document. And you can do this with, I mean, in other words, what he was explaining to me is that there were a variety of loopholes. Hmm. So if it's like still in use, then it can't be, people can't get it. Yeah, or in, in, in some manner or some fashion. Hmm. Uh, I, I have notes on this and I'll have to review them, but essentially that is what he was saying to me. And then the other thing about freedom of information, it's really, it's very difficult because um, first of all, the FOIA desks uh, are, are usually way undermanned to begin with. So if you, if you put in a request in, um, for the U.S. Navy for UFO data, hmm. all right, you can't just go to like the Secretary of the Navy and ask for every <laughs> UFO document that they have. I mean, the Navy is just so big. Right. So you've got to be very, very – you have to go to a particular – department maybe in the Office of Naval Intelligence and you ask for specific UFO data. But even within ONI, there's a myriad numbers of offices and databases and the, the person who gets the request might put out a, a, a request to like three or four of the, the people around him or her and they'll say, hey, do you have anything on this? And they may get back to that person. They may not get back to that person. What, what I've come to learn is that this is a very haphazard system. And Data gets squirreled away. There's not any, like, single, as far as I can tell, centralized engine that can generate data for Freedom of Information Act requests. So, like, when you're putting in, in other words, what I'm saying is FOIA is essentially dead in the water, and it's, it's essentially useless yeah. for uh, UFO research and for a lot of other types of research as well. I'm not saying don't do it, but it's just don't expect it to be a, a magic bullet. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, it seems like we maybe have wrung all the water out of that that we can. Or, or well, or, I'm, yeah. I have no doubt. I have no doubt that there is some seriously intriguing documentation left to be uncovered. Oh, sure, yeah. But whether we're going to get it um, legally, I think, is is very questionable. Now, illegally is another matter. And, and um, in other words, through data dumps, through uh, you know theft of digital files. Um, I have a feeling that's going to continue because I think that's going to be very difficult to stop. Right, right. So, um, and I'm I'm actually much more interested in that. And I think that's the future. We're talking about piracy. We're talking about uh, individuals illegally breaking into uh, data repositories, and I'm not condoning it or criticizing it one way or the other. I'm just saying this is the fact of life in the 21st century. It's not going to stop. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Snowden stuff, I mean, that was like a game changer in a lot of ways. It was really remarkable, especially for those of us who have been looking at this for years and years and years. I mean, your book's UFOs in the National Security State. It's like you it must have been some kind of nice justification or vindication. There's yeah, the yeah. word I was looking for <laughs> for you. Yeah. In many ways. Um, you know, what Edward Snowden's data have revealed is, is actually not radically new from what many other people have been saying for years past. But what's fundamentally different, and this is important, is that this is actual NSA data that he's he's literally been able to get. So these are proven, genuine NSA documents that prove all of what these whistleblowers and claims have been saying for years. Mm. And that is quite important. Well, do, were you surprised at how we talk about how the, you know, the media really probably doesn't want this getting out, the UFO secrets and stuff. Were you surprised uh, that, that the story became so huge in the mainstream? Yeah, but what, look at what they did with it. I mean, this this is very interesting. The whole mainstream coverage of Snowden has been so infantile. It's like they treat us like we're five-year-old children, you know, he's giving us baby food. Uh, is Snowden a hero or a traitor? What is this narrative all about? You know, it's just simplifying. In other words, the actual implications of what he is talking about have been very little discussed, in my opinion, and, um, and actually, I think there's an, a, even a deeper story to Snowden that is becoming more and more apparent, which is what Edward Snowden has said. He was CIA all the way. So what does that mean? That doesn't mean that he's deceptive, and that doesn't mean that what his data indicates is, is wrong, but it does mean that there are some kind of very interesting machinations going behind the scenes here. Hmm. How was it that Snowden was able just to go off to Hong Kong like that, right down the street from the CIA station office, by the way, if you remember. How was it that he was able to get himself to Moscow uh, safely? Did the CIA help him? Hmm. My personal belief is that they probably did, and here's why. I think that prop very possibly within the CIA, you have elements who, um, you know, who believe that the NSA has been overreaching in their power. There's always been rivalries among U.S. intelligence agencies. Yeah. CIA, FBI, NSA, military intelligence, all of them. They're all fighting with each other in many ways. Hmm. And CIA is prideful. You know, they're, they like to think they're at the top. But here's NSA sprawling everywhere, going through everyone's emails. I mean, really un-American. I mean, you want to talk about traitors. Let's look at the NSA. Yeah. They're traitors to what the United States is about. And I really suspect that you have people in the CIA saying, you know what, this is, this is wrong. We got our guy here. Uh, we're going to help him uh, get some of this data out, and we're going to hustle him the hell out of the country. And I just wonder if that's part of the backstory of Edward Snowden. I don't know if we'll ever get that story officially, but he did state that he was a, a fully trained CIA operative. 
Well, is it possible that the whole thing was done in sort of the old idea of revelation of method, that they, that the, that they, maybe the CIA and the NSA aren't necessarily at odds, but just that they wanted people to know that they're being spied on? Right, a kind of an, uh, a way of intimidating hmm. people. Sounds like you're maybe implying. Yes. Um, yeah, a couple of people have mentioned this to me as well. I, I'm not seeing that, but maybe. Maybe it's just a big mind job being perpetrated on people beyond their ability to, to fathom. You know, oh yeah, they, they're reading every single thing you've, you've ever written. Um, it seems to me that they're very unhappy. I mean, unless they're just the best actors in the world. Maybe that's the case too. Oh, I'm happy that it all got out. Uh, right, but yeah. I, I, I suspect that there's a real power play going on here. Certainly, when you listen to Snowden, the man is very eloquent, in my opinion. I think he's, he sounds like he's for real. That's my take on him at this point, after all this time. I, I, I don't think he's a shill. I think he's genuine, and I think he has truly put himself at risk for doing what he's done. Hmm. And when I've, I've listened to all of his interviews that he's given... And he's incredibly eloquent, it seems to me, and very thoughtful. So I don't, I don't think that's a game. I think that what he did is, is truly, I mean, that is technically illegal in the extreme, but thank God he did it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it had to be done. Exactly, it did have to be done. That's the, we need more people who are, who are willing to break the whole system down in a, in a non, you know, not, not blow things up. But well, what, what we're seeing is that the U.S. Congress, the U.S. Senate, Democrat, Republican, makes no difference. They are as criminal as the NSA, for the most part, in their uh, complete subservience to everything the NSA is doing. I mean, there's, there's been some criticisms of the NSA from Congress, but by and large, the vast majority of uh, members of Congress aren't really saying boo about it. Right. Plus, it's you wonder, too, given... How loosey goosey people are in this sort of internet age, and if they're, if the NSA really has such tight surveillance on on people, there's probably a lot of people that don't want to step out of line. That could end up like Anthony Weiner or something, you know. Well, absolutely. The whole point is to intimidate. Mm. It's all intimidation. If you if you know you're being surveilled, you know, let's say there's a protest against the next uh, World Bank meeting or the you know WTO protest that you know, come up every so often, or the, or the G13 or G20 protests. Hmm. Um, now we know that if you go to any of those protests, that you will be photographed, you will be video recorded. There's no question about this. And at the NSA, one of the, one of the revelations that came out is that they have incredible facial recognition software. So they'll find you, and they'll know who the hell you are, and they're going to know that you were at that rally. And that fact alone that will intimidate many people. A lot of people are just, they're, a little, they're going to be afraid. And then they're going to be afraid knowing that their emails are being read if they get out of line. I cannot tell you how many individuals that I have met in, in my area of research, UFO, and I'm not talking about seasoned researchers. I mean like new people getting into the field. Yeah. And I, <laughs> they're like little lambs. You know, the le- littlest thing is liable to get them afraid of being surveilled. I mean, people yeah. come up to me with this. I, I'm sure you've encountered this enough yourself. They have one little UFO story. I've, I've heard, literally, I've heard thousands of them at this point. Another little UFO story is not going to get me excited uh, for the most part. But to these people, like, it's all cloak and dagger. They have to speak with me in a, in a quiet area. They can't yeah. let anyone know. Yeah, They're I know exactly what you mean, yeah. 
So it's very easy for people to become intimidated, I find. And if they know that the NSA is monitoring their emails or, or video recording them at rallies, they, you know, a lot of people are just going to be cowed into submission, hmm. which I think is a big part of the point. Surveillance does intimidate people, and it, and it destroys free societies. Hmm. The limits of debate in this country are, are established before the debate even begins, and everyone else is marginalized. They're made to seem either to be communist or some sort of disloyal person. A kook, there's a word. And now it's conspiracy. See, they've made that something that, that, is, that is, uh, sh should not be even entertained for a minute, that powerful people might get together and have a plan. Doesn't happen. You're a kook. You're a conspiracy buff. Now, I saw you mentioned you have a show uh, on KGRA. It's Monday nights, uh, 9 to 11, right? Yeah, yeah, I just had a, had a program last night. Yeah, I saw your little blurb here. One of the things on there just sort of piqued my interest. You said, uh, people in the UFO field and the damaged goods syndrome. What, is, yeah, what does this mean? I just coined that phrase when I was uh, describing it yesterday. Uh, I have not heard anyone in our field talk about this, and um, it's something that I've noticed for a number of years now. And, and In fact, I was sort of indirectly uh, referring to it a moment ago. I mean, there, I have met many incredibly wonderful and brilliant people in my uh, journeys in this, in this field, in, into the weird that I've been researching for all these years. Some of the most amazing people I've ever known have been in my course of study of the UFO phenomenon. Um, and when I, I do many conferences, I do many public appearances, um, I meet them. But I also meet a number of people who really are, uh, and I'm trying to put this in a nice way because I've, I have a lot of sympathy for them, but they're off, they're damaged, there's something wrong with them. And mm. it's, not, it's not always the followers, by the way. It's not simply the attendees. Sometimes it's the researchers themselves. Um, they're good people, but you can see there's something wrong with a lot of them. And I wondered, like, well, what is it? What is it that's wrong? Well, uh, you know, sometimes it's just a simple thing like lacking basic social skills and social awareness. Perfect example. This is so typical. Um, I, was, I was at a conference just a week ago in San Mateo, California, in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. It was a great, great event. I enjoyed it. And I was outside, nice weather, chatting with three or four people, and this young man uh, walked right up to me. He's probably 25 years old or so. And, and he, you could just tell he wasn't, he wasn't quite right. He just interrupted, I, having a very active general conversation. Right. Goes right in and asks me a, a particular question, and so, in other words, there's this, you see this tendency a lot. Yeah. There's this kind of, it's, I don't want to call it narcissism, because when someone's narcissistic, they, they really believe that, like, they're greater than everyone else, and they're in love with themselves. But there's a certain ego, there's, like, tunnel vision. they're at the center of the universe, and no, no one else's situation really matters. Yeah. So it's kind of like a narcissism. So he comes in, he interrupts, and then asks this very kind of brilliant, kind of crazy, kind of ill-worded question. And the question had to do with, Basically, do human beings have their own torsion fields, and is this related to why aliens may be interested in us, or does this have to do with interdimensionality? I mean, the question wasn't really formulated in, in anything remotely coherent way. Yeah. Torsion fields are interesting, by the way. Um, that has to do with the, the spinning nature of the universe itself. Everything spins in the universe, from solar systems to galaxies and planets. 
And that creates a kind of field of energy, and I'm no expert in torsion field, but it's very interesting. And this kid was asking about, do we have torsion fields? And I thought, hmm, I never really thought about that. That's interesting. But he went on and on and on and on and on. It was obvious to me that this, this young man doesn't get out much. Yeah. And he's, so he's very intelligent. That's t- symptomatic. Yeah. Um, and then there are, there's a woman at the same conference. Comes to my table. She's talking. And um, she's a very nice older lady. And she's chatting. And then she, says, she leans over and she says, well... I don't know for sure, but I have very good reason to believe, and I'm going to try to find this out, and I think I'm going to be able to prove it, that I am Mary Magdalene. <laughs> That's exactly what she said. And, of course, you get that at these conferences. And I know you've encountered this Yeah, absolutely. As well. Yeah, yeah. So the question is, like, what is happening? What is, what is it about? It's not just the UFO field. It's anything having to do with the New Age. It's anything having to do with the conspiracy field. In other words, it's... It, anything that has to do with what we would call alternative research, I think, draws a certain number of these types of personalities in. And I call them, it, it, I'm calling it the damaged goods syndrome because it, these people are damaged goods. There's something that's happened to them. And my feeling on this, it's not, maybe, maybe a small percentage of them are damaged goods because they've had genuinely disturbing experiences that they don't know how to process and they have a for yeah. PTSD. Uh, I've talked to a few people recently, and I think that that was the case with them. They've had uh, what seemed to be abduction experiences that were not fun, and uh, it, I think it messed them up. So there's, that's part of it. But I think a greater part of it has to do with, let's call it the red pill effect. Remember in The Matrix, Neo has the choice. He can take the blue pill or the red pill. And the red pill takes you down the rabbit hole of truth, the crazy truth, mm. right, that many people are honestly not always prepared for. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking as you're saying that. These are people who get overwhelmed by right. this, uh, this reality yeah. that, that, that we kind of have one foot in each reality, you and I do, you know, trying to Absolutely. navigate and, between and the mainstream reality and the one that we've researched here. Precisely. And if, and if you have certain insecurity issues going in, if you have certain psychological issues going in, when you take that red pill, that can make it even worse. It really could. So what I, what I really feel is that it's very important for people who are in this alternative reality that we are working, which is the true reality, we, we feel, it's, it's very important to actually to, to care about things like nutrition and health and exercise and to do things that actually keep you healthy and happy and active because you need to have your mind working at its best in order to do this. This is hard work. You know, dealing with this alternative reality is, is not easy. Hmm. I've done it now for 20 years, and and I feel that I, I'm pretty good at it, and it's hard for me. You know, there are days when I just want to, I would love to veg out, you know, watch a football game and do nothing else, no hard work. For whatever reason, I can't be like that. Hmm. I'm drawn into this into this field to work, but it, it takes a toll on you. And um, fortunately for me, I'm, I'm a nutrition fanatic. And I'm 52 now, Tim, but I, I weigh exactly what I weighed when I was 35 years old. I feel good. Wow. I think, nice. yeah, I, think, I think I feel as good as I've ever felt in my whole life. I do yoga this, these days. I'm really into that. I'm feeling good, and, and thank God I, I do this because I think that um, I think it would be harder for me to function with all of the, the stress that I deal with as a researcher in this field. Hmm. So when I look at some of these other people um, who... You know, it's hard for them to handle. And like uh, people who believe they've been abducted. 
I'm not saying they haven't. I mean, I, I've, I've interviewed people that I do believe have had abduction experiences. But I've met a number of people that I'm not, not really so sure that they've had encounters. But they need to believe they've had encounters. And I've, I've seen this many times. They've had whatever issues they've had growing up. Um, and now that they're a, an abductee or a victim or not a victim, but someone who's been transformed, whatever it is, they, they have a need to interpret their experience in such a way that gives meaning to their life and value to their life, and it becomes very emotionally important to them. So this is, this is part of what is, goes on in our field. And mm. that's, that's an inherently unstable type of personality where someone needs to have validation for something that's happened to them that's an inherently unstable kind of situation. It's a, it's difficult in a way. It's kind of it reminds me. I've often likened professional wrestling to the paranormal. They seem to exist in similar worlds, and it's kind of like that, where there's like millions of people that watch professional wrestling, but no one wants to advertise on professional wrestling because they think that everyone who watches it are like hillbillies and stuff. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't yeah. thought of that. And it's kind of the same in a way. It kind of is a parallel to what we're talking about here, in a sense, where it's like. It's unfortunate that the subjects are tagged with the idea that their fans, for lack of a better term, are, are crazy people. But then when you look closer, like you're saying, unfortunately, it's true. <laughs> it's well, kind of true. A certain, a certain element. Right. A, portion, um, a demographic of the audience. A certain, yeah, and, and to me, you know, you have, you have uh, people like Neil deGrasse Tyson making fun of them, and I think that's, that's such a shame, and it's such a... A, a, it's such a black mark against his reputation. It's really beneath him to make fun of people who, who've gone through what appear to be abduction experiences. Mm. Um, what we really should feel is sympathy for these people, not not make fun of them. Um, if they have or have not gone through these experiences, they, they're, as I see it anyway, many of them are really suffering individuals, and they've gone through difficulties, and they're trying to make sense out of their lives, and they're trying to validate their experiences in one way or another, and they're not all stable personalities, and unfortunately, that's, that's humanity. Hmm. And, and part of the problem, though, it's, part of it really isn't due to them. Part of it is due to the fact that we do live in this crazy, illusory reality that's filled with lie upon lie upon lie upon lie. And, um, you know, when you, when you tear through layer after layer of illusion and deception and lies, when you come out at the other end, if we ever do come out fully, you're in a, a, you're in a world of you hmm. that is so radically different from that of your family and most of your friends and the stuff that you grew up believing in. It's a jarring, difficult experience psychologically to deal with. Well, how the hell could it not take a toll? on someone's personality, hmm. unless they're really strong and really healthy and a true warrior who's ready to go in and fight the fight. Most people, you know, they're not ready. So when they take that red pill and their previous paradigm worldview just shatters into a thousand pieces and is, you know, scattered to the four winds of heaven, now they, well, now how do they create their worldview? Most people aren't ready to be comfortable with all the uncertainty. They want some level of certainty, and you know, it's that, that need to have solid ground under your feet. Unfortunately, it's part of our weakness mm. because we're in a because once you tear away the old illusions, 
putting together a coherent worldview is it's not always easy to do um, unless you just want to take shortcuts and that's what I think most people do it's yeah it's it's you're right they it it's a difficult uh it's difficult to sort of like i said uh straddle these two realities in a way I think people who get deep into this need to accept the fact that uh the reality that we think that we're uncovering isn't the shared reality of the mainstream, no matter right. how much we want that to be the case and how much we want to get people to make that, that transition. It can be frustrating. It can be very frustrating. You know, I grew up in a very, uh, very blue-collar environment. Um, in my extended family, I was the first person to go to college, to a four-year college, I guess I should say. And uh, I was the smart little professor of the family. That was my nickname. I, I had... But if you ever saw the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, uh, those are my people, except they weren't of Greek descent, they were of Italian descent, but they were the cheek-pinching, back-slapping in your face. You know, wonderful people. I loved every one of them, and especially the older crowd. They're all gone now, and I miss them. They were, but they were simple. I mean, these were not, these are not people who would step out of the matrix. Hmm. And I, what do I, who am I to hold that against them? I love them. They were, my grandmother is one of these people. She was a simple, she was like a saint to me, and I'll always miss her. But I would never think to throw my information that I have amassed at my poor grandmother and expect her to deal with it. I just, and, and most people in this world are like that, in mm. my opinion. And God bless them and let them be like that. But then there are, there are people who, um, who can't be like that. You know, I could never be like that, and I, obviously you can't be like that. And there are people listening, and they can't be like that. Right. So then the question is, when you, when you realize, when you, when you become brave enough to challenge that reality, um, it takes more than bravery. It takes real strength, uh, personal and intellectual, and I think physical health, uh, as I've been saying, and psychological health. Yeah. Because going into this new reality, it's a real challenge and it can take a toll on someone. And, I, and this is what I'm talking about with the damaged goods syndrome, that it, it, um, if you're, I mean, there are, you know, the vast majority of people who have an interest in the fringe are perfectly psychologically normal. And, hmm. and, yeah. You know, you can have a cup of coffee and everything's cool. Um, but... Uh, a lot of them are, and actually with researchers, let me just say this, and I'm not going to mention any names. I'm okay. going to do that. But um, you get some quirky people in the research field. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I have been told, so now people who know me can form their own judgment, but I, I will just say to you that, that people who know me tend to tell me, they say, Richard, you're, you're like the most grounded person in this field. You're like a normal guy. Well, I hope that's true. I, I, I think that that is the case. I mean, I just spent the last uh, 20 years raising two teenagers and, uh, you know, basically living a, a totally regular life. I, I mow the lawn, I pay the bills, I do all the stuff. and yeah. Exactly. Um, but um, a lot of the researchers in this field actually, and, and this is maybe me being a, a, a parent snob, okay, forgive me, but a lot of them don't have kids. Hmm. I noticed this. A few of them are, have the empty nest syndrome that the kids have grown up, but like a lot of the active researchers that I've, I've met do not have kids. A lot of them live alone. One of them at the recent conference I went to, the entire weekend was wearing a pair of bedroom slippers. 
<laughs> and he's he's a great guy. I love his work. He's smart. But he goes to the car, he's wearing slippers. And I looked at his scene, I see the bedroom slippers, and I'm like, I, don't, I didn't say anything. He gave his lecture on the slippers, and I'm thinking, he's not going to be on MSNBC anytime soon. Like, the mainstream media is not going to talk to this guy. Yeah. Or if they do, they're going to make, he's going to look crazy. Right, right. And some of the other researchers, actually quite a few, had very quirky types of personalities. Not, not wrong, not bad, but... Um, and then, and then even among certain researchers, there's this excessive paranoia. You know, researchers who go to conferences with bodyguards, oh, you know, God. enough of this. I did, yeah. last year there were two, there was Greer and David Wilcock at Contact in the Desert, and in fact I'm going back there in a month. They both go in there with bodyguards, and you know what, I'm sorry, I have no use for this. Yeah, um, that's just theatrics for the sake of uh, being dramatic. I, I, I think... Absolutely, I do. I mean, and if you actually think that you need a bodyguard, then you've got a level of paranoia that should make one question your reliability. Hmm, and, uh, exactly, exactly. Or, or if, if you're doing it for theatrics, then you know it's even worse. Yeah. So, um, but but actually, it's not just those two. I've seen other people come in with some bodyguards, and I'm like, really, honestly, you know. Clearly, you need a bodyguard now. This is the new thing. It's the <laughs> new. Affectation to have, I guess. <laughs> I, I think sometimes it's an affectation, and sometimes it's genuine paranoia. Yeah. And and that to me is almost as disturbing. So, um, if, you know, the field again, it's the fringe, and it draws people who are not comfortable in the mainstream kind of corporate matrix-like world of ours. And, and I get that, and I respect that. But I guess that's just part of it. You know, we're we're out there, and we we attract. We attract other people out there, and as a result... Um, well, that's systemic of the cultural baggage we talked about earlier, where it's, you know, yeah, this is, yeah. it's hard for the mainstream media to take us seriously because we got guys running around in slippers. Yeah, I mean, that's basically it. And, and you don't want to be a, you know, like you're saying, this guy's a great guy, you don't want to be a jerk or anything, so it's, we're caught in, in, a, in, a, in a moral quandary of sorts, too. Two years ago, yeah. Two years ago, I did an event uh, also in California, near the Bay Area, in fact, and... Um, uh, I had a had a big argument with another researcher. I, again, I, I don't want to do names. I'm just I'm not interested in hmm. hashing this up. But he was he was a quirky guy for sure, for sure. I met him, and he was dressed like Michael Jackson, like with sunglasses and gloves. This is in the summertime in California. Oh God! Had, uh, kind of military para, paramilitary uh, clothing and high boots. And I think, who, what is this guy? Well, he was very intelligent, very intelligent. Anyway. Uh, he and I had words on the panel. At this. this has never been on YouTube, so maybe if it goes on YouTube one day, I'll, I'll talk more. But anyway, he did an interview uh, a week later, and he accused me of being a CIA operative. Why? Well, one of the key reasons, and I'm not joking, was, um, well, Richard Dolan dresses so impeccably with those fancy, expensive suits of his, Everyone in this field is flat broke, but he obviously is able to afford these $1,000 Italian suits. <laughs> he must be CIA. He actually, I don't think he said $1,000 Italian suits, and they're not $1,000 Italian suits by any means. But uh, he accused me of being a CIA operative because I dressed so well. Oh, my God. But for my attitude is, I want to dress well, particularly when I'm in a public venue, because I am representing a phenomenon, a subject, and a field of research that I feel 
needs needs that armor. It needs that respect. Hmm. And that's an important aspect of what we're out here trying to do. I'm not just trying to preach to the choir. I'm out there talking to the rest of the world who who don't understand why this topic is so important. They don't understand that this is this is not fun and games. This is some serious stuff. Right, right. It needs to be handled in that way. And unfortunately, um, there's not enough not, not enough researchers who I think recognize that it's important. Well, to, uh, to dress the part, some of them do, but a lot, a lot of them don't. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, you made you you uh, reminded me of another uh, guy who was on. He wanted to be on the show, and before he came on the show, like years and years before, he accused me of being part of the part of the East Coast Rockefeller elite, which was a nice uh, thing interesting. to say. Yeah, which I clearly am not. And but the 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 interesting part is when you, when you find yourself in a scenario like that, it's like, how can I take this guy seriously? How can I take his material seriously? Because exactly. he wants to be on the show. How can I take you seriously when you're saying things that I know are patently false? Like, I know for an absolute fact that I'm not part of the Rockefeller. No, movie. exactly. This, this is precisely my response to, to that uh, particular researcher as well. So, uh, I thought, you know, just complete hot air. Hmm. But there's it's that paranoia syndrome, again, that comes in. Yeah. And, and paranoia is, is part of the damaged good syndrome, I, I think. I mean, we have reason to feel some paranoia in this world. Don't get me wrong. We got, I mean, it's a messed up situation. But when, when someone gets that paranoid about themselves, it, it, nine times out of ten, I think they're, they're inflating themselves to a degree that's, that's borderline narcissistic, where they, they are convinced that what they're all about is the most important thing in that... Um, and that, therefore, they must be the target of an active, you know, NSA, CIA program. And I, well, it, it, they may be monitored for sure, but that doesn't mean that they're being acted against actively. I, I've seen very little evidence of people truly being acted against. It, it's happened. Right. I was going to ask you because we know about sort of how they disrupted all these UFO groups in the past, and the whole Rich Doty story, and Paul Benowitz, and the Aviary, and Bill Moore, and, and all that. And much, there's much more than that. Absolutely. So, so it does happen, and we do have to be on our guard. But um, a lot of these people who are, are talking about being, uh, you know, interacting with, with the black world, uh, I just, you just talk to them for five minutes and you know that they're not right. There's something very wrong about them. Hmm. Do, you, do you, now, in light of like what we just talked about with all this stuff in the past, do you think the government's still actively, for lack of a better word, like tinkering with the UFO yes. field, or do you think they've moved on? No, I, th- I think they'll always tinker with it. I think, in fact, that... Uh, this subject requires them not simply to try to monitor and um, and guide this field to whatever extent possible, but I, I've, I've come to feel that um, the UFO reality is, is one of the reasons that's prompting them to have what I would call a global totalitarianism, that actually uh, in order to contain this, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why there are people who want a global totalitarian state, but the UFO subject is one of those reasons. Hmm. So, yes, I think that it's, it's always going to be of interest. Um, and I do suspect, you know, the conference I went to last week, um, which was had to do with the Secret Space and Breakaway Civilization Conference, that was the name of it, that that probably did draw um, people from the intelligence community just to see what, what some of us were talking about these days. Yeah. Maybe just keeping tabs. Um, if they're trying to steer the discussion... Um, I, 
I've occasionally wondered this, sure, you know, has, has anyone in our field been, is covertly working with Intel? I, I can just say um, I don't, I'm not confident about any one person enough that I would say I'm pretty sure that they're, they're working right. for Intel. I mean, there's a few people that I have wondered about. I would not mention any of these people right. by name because I just, I'm not that confident. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and unless I had proof, it, would be, uh, it wouldn't make any much sense for me to do it. So, um, no, I know what you mean, yeah, but, yeah. There's people that I've thought that kind of thing too about in the past. Sure. Uh, this, the, the subject is important enough, even even if you don't believe in aliens. Uh, I think the evidence for genuine UFOs. This is, you know, are we even having this discussion anymore? There, there are thousands upon thousands of sightings of black triangles. Someone's flying these triangles. They're obviously engaging in principles of propulsion that are vastly beyond anything our aviation industry is talking about. And if that being the case, this is obviously a secret program, and they obviously, the people running it, want to keep it secret. So clearly they're going to be interested in people like ourselves who are talking about it. And for the most part, I don't think they really care because they realize, you know, Richard Dolan can say whatever the hell he wants, and there'll be a few thousand people listening to him, but there'll be many millions more who are not listening and who are just being spoon-fed the latest you know, daily dosage of BS through the uh, propaganda system. And, and so people like me can, and, and you can talk, yeah. but it's not really going to make any changes. Right, right. So for the most part, I think they just ignore us. Mm. And I think it's, it's only necessary to, to, to take more active measures you know, at certain times, perhaps. But I think, generally speaking, they can just ignore us. And if they control the, the main organs of power and the main media... I don't think they really care what we say. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Because we're, you know, we're on right now at like 3:30 in the afternoon. Uh, Judge Judy, I think, is probably on against us, and definitely is crushing us right now. And, and viewers are listening. So Judge Judy, yeah, <laughs> it's like the perfect metaphor. Because um, a couple of months ago, I was on a flight uh, on an airplane, and I was next to a, a younger guy who's probably in mid-30s. And on his phone, this dude was watching Judge Judy. I wanted to <laughs> shake him. I mean, I, I just wanted to grab him by the shoulders and say, dude, do you realize what this is doing to you? You're participating in a, a mind job more than you have any idea. Hmm. I think people just blissfully, they just, they, you know, it's a combination of they have too much stress of, of trying to yeah. get by in this world, and, and then they just, they don't, they don't want to think about it. No, exactly. This is like, you know, the people I grew up with, like I was saying earlier, and, and they were wonderful people, and he's... I was probably a good guy, but uh, most people, they, um, you know, they're not always naturally curious. First of all, I think some of us are wired a little differently. I really do. Um, not every kid is equally curious about the world. Some are just fanatically curious, and they have to know things, right? Hmm. So that's part of it. And then how we uh, enter society matters. In other words, most uh, people, when they get out of high school or get out of college, they get a job. And they end up working for a company, and the company wants your time, it wants your body, it wants your mind, it wants your soul. You have to be a team player, and, you know, you do that enough years, and you end up being a team player. And you kind of, it's very hard. It's very hard to kind of get out of that. You come home, you're tired, you want a beer, you want to hang out with your family, watch a little TV. Who's going to have energy? Who's going to have the education? Who's going to have the wherewithal to fight the system, to fight the machine, get behind the matrix? Very few people. Yeah. 
And so it's a lot easier, of course, um, simply to, to play along. Find your little pleasures where you can, right? That's what people do. And Well, and, do you, um, yeah. do you well, to go down a different path, I guess, well, same sort of idea, but, you know, we've seen... I think we met originally at the uh, at the X conference uh, like ten years ago, and and, yes. and you know that the whole right. XO politics thing is is grown and morphed and evolved. And last year they had the big citizen hearing. I mean, how do you you're on the front lines of this much more than I am nowadays. I, I kind of am still dabbling in all the all the uh, fringe arts, let's say. But uh, so you know, what do you think the activism aspect of ufology is working? Is it making a difference, or do you think we're spinning our wheels on this? I think the biggest, uh, I love this question, by the way. Um, activism, I think, is not harmful to moving this issue forward, but I do not believe that it's really the, the way that it's going to break the secret. I think what's happening, I think much more significant, is, is massive cultural change. Mm-hmm. Uh, think, about, think about the gay rights movement. Think, go back a little over 100 years and think about a guy like Oscar Wilde who spent his last years like rotting away in a prison because he was, my God forbid, he was homosexual. And in 19th century Victorian England, that was an abomination. So that was the attitude then. And so then you go through the entire 20th century and you look at the, the gay rights movement itself. How did, how did we go from there to, to where we are today where the U.S. is basically legalizing gay marriage pretty much everywhere now? And where attitudes about, about um, homosexuality are totally different, obviously, than they were back then, for the most part. Hmm. Well, it wasn't by gay rights activists trying to take on Congress and um, attack the uh, evangelical churches and things like that. I mean, there was always some hostility there, but that's not how they made the change. The real change happened by several brave people at first just coming out. Simple. And being out there in society and being who they were and being brave and being an example for others to come out and then for others more to come out and then to start a culture and then the next thing they know they've got a large community and the next thing they know they realize they've got some power. That's, that's how real change takes place. It's on a massive basic cultural level. And I think with the UFO phenomenon, here's what I notice. When I started in this business about 20 years ago, I started out just having no idea. I knew none of the culture. Um, what I knew is that, God forbid I tell anyone I was researching UFOs. My first <laughs> year of that, it was back in 1994, it was 20 years ago. I didn't even tell my wife for the whole first year that I was researching this. That's how, and God forbid I tell anyone in the academic world that I was right. involved in. That was like walking in with you know, pornography into the university with the <laughs> same thing. But what I, what I realized is that when I would start talking to people about my research, that a large number of them were actually quite interested, like to my surprise, hmm. large majority. And I realized that they were interested because, A, uh, I got to a point where I kind of knew what I was talking about. I was somewhat articulate about it, and they were like, oh, that's interesting. And then I realized that there is a tremendous latent hunger for knowledge about this topic that's not being tapped. Hmm. There's a tremendous potentiality for interest in this topic, but it has to be presented in the right way. And so I think that what I've seen in the last two decades is I have seen real cultural change. Um, It's not complete. 
we're not anywhere near where the gay rights movement is in the UFO kind of reality and culture, but I have seen real progress in the last 20 years. And I think that with the citizen hearing, incidentally, I think that the real legacy of that is not going to be political. It's going to be cultural. You're going to have millions of young people going on to YouTube, and they're going to see that. And what they're going to see are well-dressed, articulate people, for the most part, speaking to what look like congressmen. They're retired members of Congress, Hmm. but this is like a real hearing. And they're going to see a series of very articulate 10-minute presentations on a subject that overall, I think, was was well-treated during that week of hearings. Overall, I think it it was done very well. That's the legacy. Hmm. So from now on, for the end of time, until there's no more YouTube, there will be people who are going to see that. It's going to have a tremendous ripple effect, a tremendous cultural effect. And that's just one aspect. This is just yeah. this citizen hearing. There's going to be a Human lot of... Right, yeah. This is what's happening in our culture. We're seeing a massive cultural shift. And sometimes it's easy for us to uh, overlook it because... You know, we're looking at change day after day, and today is kind of like yesterday, and tomorrow is going to feel kind of like today. Hmm. But when you step back five years, ten years, twenty years, you know, you can see tremendous change happening. Another ten or twenty years, I can't even imagine right. where we're going to be culturally. But I think, I think that uh, there will be increasingly more uh, significant inroads made into the general culture toward acceptance of the UFO reality. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I've argued that it's a generational thing, too. And, oh, yeah. You know. I, I, I agree. And the, the next generation that comes along, it keeps, it'll keep getting better, in a sense. Well, yeah, that's right. People don't change as much as generations do. You know, there's only so much that you and I, in the course of our lives, are going to continue metamorphosizing ourselves into something new. I mean, we can, but the real change is in new generations who grew up with different assumptions. Hmm. Who be, they're wired differently because they have different formative experiences, different ideologies. So that's where real change is. That's why human beings should never become, uh, seek for immortality. That's like the worst thing. you got these people who want to like live forever. Oh, God, yeah. That's, uh, Put your brain into a computer, that kind of thing. Well, uh, we need our new generations. We need new thinking, fresh thinking all the time. Absolutely. Well, speaking of fresh thinking... Um let me see what this guy's name was. He sent me a question here. I'll give him credit for it because uh, I thought it was interesting. I don't know if you're fa- – it's Bill Burt sent me this question. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the work of David Polides, who's done these uh, Missing 411 books. Have you heard about this at all? No. Missing what books? Missing four, it's, they're called Missing 411. It's about uh, mysterious disappearances in state parks. No, it sounds quite interesting. You should check it out, yeah. yeah he he yeah. wanted to know if you had any thoughts on it. But it's, oh, well, yeah. there <laughs> There's my answer. Yeah. Very it's, interesting. I don't know. Uh, I don't think I know much. Well, I've, one hears, of course, yeah. that there are thousands of people every year who just disappear. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And there are all kinds of theories about what happens to these people, but um, I don't know about this man's research. And it, well, check uh, it out. I would, I would be interested stuff. in that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah well, the, aside from... I see what you're saying on the generational, uh, on the on the uh, raising the public awareness and that kind of thing. I think I'd like to see. I feel like we just need sort of to get over this hump where people are, where it's okay to ask questions about the UFO phenomenon. I'm not sure how we can get people to feel that way, but uh, I've sort of advocated for more just better public relations in a sense. Well, what we need, honestly, it, it, if, if the model of uh, of the gay rights movement really is applicable, what we need are, are brave people. We need a few brave, articulate people. I'm, 
I'm in my way, I'm trying to be one of them, who's willing and able to go out there and put themselves out there and to be a spokesperson for this reality so that other people can also feel brave, whether they're talking to their family or friends and not even necessarily trying to evangelize anyone or be a hmm. to convert them, but simply to say, yes, this is actually uh, something that I think is real. This is why I think it's real. I don't know all of the answers, but there's actually a surprisingly large amount of evidence that supports something going on. Hmm. And um, I think if, if more and more people are simply personally brave on that level, there's the two types of bravery that are important for this, by the way. So there's that type of bravery, which is, in other words, standing up to social ridicule or the possible ridicule, right? Yeah. And that does take bravery. The other bravery, though, is I would call intellectual bravery. In other words, being willing to challenge your own worldview. Hmm. That's hard. That's hard to do. Um, most people, you get to a certain age in life, uh, 30s or so, and they think, oh, I've got it all figured out. And, um, and that's their life. And they, you know, they're not really willing to challenge their, their fundamental worldviews anymore. Yeah, yeah. It's um, like why the advertisers want the people that are 18 because they'll buy anything. They'll try anything. Once you're a certain oh, age, you're right. stuck with one. You know, you only drink Pepsi. That's, a, <laughs> that's it. You're not going to try Coca after that. that that's a, yeah, that's a very good point. That's exactly it. So, um, you know, people get to a certain age and they... And actually, this, this is all uh, biologically uh, studied. Uh, neurologically speaking, our brains really don't become truly formed in an adult sense until we're in our late 20s, 27, 28, when neurologically speaking, the, the jello hardens into something that's a little more firm, you know. Mm. Uh, before then, your, your neural pathways are still kind of forming. You're not fully what you will then become for the rest of your life. By the time you're 27, 28, neurologically speaking, you do. So I think it all does fit. You get to a certain age. It's not that you can't have new ideas after that. Of course you can. I was 32 when I encountered the UFO phenomenon. But I was still young enough that I had, because I hadn't been sucked into the world of academia. If I had encountered UFOs as an idea five years later, who knows if I would have gone into it or not. I have no idea. Had you even considered it five years before? How did it even, you know, had it crossed your radar think, at all? Um, not more than the average person. I grew up, I think, with a very totally average attitude about UFOs. Yeah. In other words, I didn't think about it very much. It wasn't really part of my worldview. There were times when I thought, gee, I wonder, like everyone probably did, and then I would dismiss the thought because I'd be working on other things, and I think that's what most people do. Um, I came into the UFO subject, I think, at the exact perfect age for me. I was 32 years old. I was old enough. I had done a great deal of study by then of American history, of world history, of American foreign relations, of Cold War studies. I mean, I wasn't as expert as a lot of other people, but I was much more of an expert than most people. I had a very good handle on it. And I was, I would say, intellectually mature, finally, at that age. But I was young enough that I was able to be flexible uh, and to throw myself into this. I was young enough also in that I was a little naive enough to think, yes, I could write a really great book on this and I could turn this world upside down on its head. <laughs> uh, looking back at that, how the hell could I have this idea that I could write a 500-page history that would... But it was that naivete, that, that blind belief that, that you could only get from youth that actually allowed me to succeed. So I hit the UFO phenomenon, I think, at the exactly perfect time in my life. Yeah. Are you happy that you 
got mixed up in all this, or do you ever look back? I mean, after getting to travel across Canada and Winnebago, I can't imagine why you'd be unhappy to embrace this I, I, Are you kidding? I love what I have done. Hmm. I think it was the best decision I could possibly have made. It wasn't the best financial decision. I could have gone into corporate America and had a nice house, made uh, six figures year after year, maybe seven figures. Who knows, right? Uh, as it is, because of what I've done, I'm, this is a definite financial sacrifice. On the other hand, um, it's been the greatest adventure I can imagine. Hmm. Uh, I mean, just in t- the intellectual journey alone. If I had no recognition whatsoever, the intellectual journey alone would be worth it, worth all the struggle, worth it, because of uh, because that's just how I'm wired. I, I'm what kind of person who I, I need to know. I need to try to figure things out. If I don't have a good puzzle to figure out in my life, I, I would be bored. Uh, but then... The fact that I have been lucky to get recognition, the fact that I've been lucky to meet so many cool people like you. You're one of the cool people oh, that I've thanks, got to meet man. in this field. You know it. Um, and so many other people. That's been, I don't know how to quantify that. Yeah, so no, it's I know. It's my life tremendously. I know exactly what you mean. It's, it's funny. Some of my best friends are people that I just talk to on the phone or, or do shows with, uh, but mm-hmm. they're from this field. They're from the paranormal. So it's, yeah. it's really uh, pretty remarkable. Um, yes, I have no regrets whatsoever. Um, it's been it's been difficult. It's been taxing. It's been stressful many many times. And there have been things personally that I have had, that I've gone through because of this field that I've never talked about with anyone and probably never will. But have been difficult. But all of that's part of life as well. It, a lot of this is unavoidable. Well, I don't want to go too deeply into that. But what now? You you talk to a lot of people. A lot of. Uh, like you, you mentioned way earlier here in the conversation, I'm still fascinated by this guy who talked to the, all, all the different presidents. And, oh, well, he, he's absolutely brilliant, man. Hmm. Now, you talk to a lot of folks like that, and you get a lot of information and stuff um, that is that, that you have to be really careful with, let's say. Right. Do you ever get concerned about knowing this stuff? Yeah, I had a, I had a um, series of interactions a few years ago with, I, I still don't know who these people are. I had a series of emails uh, from alleged insiders who uh, I've never and probably will never go public with it because the fact is that I, I have my, I've developed my doubts about their motives and reliability. Hmm. But suffice to say that they, they sold me a great story. You know, they told me um, a lot of things about what they. Uh, we're arguing was how the inside of the, the black budget, clandestine world, the majestic world of UFO cover-up was operating. And um, I would, I can say that I never got to the point where I, I like was fully signed on and believed them. But there was a period where, I mean, I had a very positive interaction with them, and I was continually trying to draw them out, you know. Hmm. And so, trying to get more information from them and, and trying to confirm one way or another. It got to a point, though, and I, I don't mind saying this, where it just became so frustrating to me. I couldn't, I couldn't confirm a damn thing. Yeah. And that I finally concluded that I was being led down a rabbit hole, and I basically said that to them, and I never heard from them again. <laughs> so, so I mean, this this kind of thing happens, and you can get paranoid, believe hmm. me. And they can they can, um, you know, tell you all kinds of nice things to, to butter you up, which is what these people did to me. Mr. Dolan, we know your work is very important, and we're going to tell you this. And um, I never, I never went public. I never, ever 
described any of that stuff to the world, rest of the world. Yeah. Nothing of what they told me ever got out. Because it could have just been their aim to, to do just that. So. I think I think yeah. um, it could easily have been done to discredit me. But so aside from the, but but you don't feel like any any personal danger or anything like that. Aside no, from I never people um, trying to mislead you. No, um, I used to get stopped at airports. That happened for a couple of years. That was way back in the day, almost a decade ago. Hmm. My name was flagged. <laughs> who knows? Who knows why? Honestly, I couldn't get an answer out of TSA. They don't tell you anything. I, it might have been because I was for a little while. I was talking a lot about 9/11 publicly, and that might have been the reason. Hmm. Uh, but I was on some kind of bad guy list. It wasn't a no-fly. They would let me fly, but they would stop me for 15 minutes at every desk I went to. Oh, God. Make a phone call. Yeah. And like my luggage, anything that I checked would end up at Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C. For real. This happened many times. Really? And opened up, and yeah, this was normal back in 04, 05, 06. Oh, God. Um, I used to have str- weird white vans hanging out in front of my house. On one occasion, uh, I saw the van there, and I said, Damn it, I'm going out there. I'm going to knock on his window. I said this out loud. As soon as I stepped outside the side door of my house, he just drove off. <sighs> Coincidence? Who knows? I had a Time Warner guy look at my Internet because I was having Internet problems. And he, he says, you've got some weird stuff going on here. He goes outside my house, climbs the telephone pole, comes back in, scratching his head, singing, I don't know what you're into, buddy. And then he looks at my wall, and he sees UFO this, conspiracy that, all my books. Hmm. And he says, oh. And basically what he said to me, and this is also back in the early part of the first decade, maybe 03, 04. Um, he said, um, look, I can't do anything about this. You've got some crazy stuff going on here, and I, can just, I just have to go. Like, he wasn't huh. able to fix my problem. Right, and he was actually sounded like he was almost spooked by the whole Correct. thing. Correct. Yeah. He was, because he made a phone call, and I couldn't hear what was on the other line, and he wouldn't really get into it with me. Jeez. So I've had some, but I've never, I've never had anyone threaten me. Hmm. I've never, I've never felt that I was in physical danger because of the work that I do. Hmm. I, I've always had, uh, and in particular when these individuals were emailing with me, it was very clear to me that I was being monitored in one way or another because <clears throat> they sure knew a lot about me. So um, I assume that I've been monitored. And yeah. my attitude about it is, <clears throat> what, what am I going to do? Uh, I want to crawl under a rock and, and just hide for the rest of my life? That's silly. I can't do that. So I, I don't even care. For, from, I mean, I do care. It, it's disturbing to me that this would happen to me. But I can either get upset about it and become incapacitated, or I can just go about my business. Well, the funny part is if they're trying to scare you by monitoring you, now the cat's out of the bag because they're monitoring everybody. So <laughs> so you don't have even less to be worried about. Well, that's that's right. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite expressions and it's, it, I, it, is uh, it's the nail that sticks out that gets hammered. And uh, I, guess, I guess I'm one of the nails that sticks out. There's other people who stick out as well. And I don't want to get hammered. I, I <laughs> want to... I just want to be able to do my thing. I just want to be able to speak my mind and, and tell the truth as I understand it. It's distressing to me that we're in a world where people can often feel constrained about speaking the truth. Why should we be afraid to speak the truth? Why should we be afraid to investigate the truth? That, that's the most natural thing for an evolved human being to want to do is to understand truth and to investigate and to speak it. And I'm never going to allow anyone to intimidate me otherwise. 
that's my attitude. Nice. But it, it, it's annoying to me that, that they do it, but um, I, I've decided I'm not going to let it bother me. Well, that's a good sign. That's good. That's a good attitude to have. You've got to keep, keep moving on here on this Absolutely. whole thing. Now, somebody wrote in asking about uh, Project Bluebeam. Um, I, I'm ah. familiar with it, but why don't you talk a little bit about it so we can sure. satisfy their question. Bluebeam is an idea. It's an alleged uh, plan to create, I guess what we can we might call it the false alien invasion, the false flag alien invasion. That would be uh, presumably a series of holographic displays and other types of techno uh, events that would convince the world that there's an alien invasion underway, that would scare people into acquiescing and giving up all of their rights to a, a global fascist police state. That would be the idea. That's the blue beam concept. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm actually not a believer in the blue beam idea. I'm not saying that there are no false flags. There are false flags all the time. Uh, but the Blue Beam one, the origin of Project Blue Beam actually uh, derives from um, a little over 20 years ago, a man from Quebec who's no longer alive. His name was Serge Monast. He was a Quebecois. I don't even think he spoke English. And uh, his, he was an evangelical type of Christian, and his original incarnation of Blue Beam was that it would involve not an ET invasion, but the second coming of Christ, and that there would be a fake second coming of Christ, and that somehow this would uh, create the new world order. That was It was a kind of a convoluted hmm. way of expressing it, but anyone can Google this guy. Yeah. Uh, Monas died, and some say that he was murdered. I, I look at the man, he looked extremely unhealthy in every picture I ever saw of him. He was a chain smoker, and he was overweight, and he just didn't look like he was going to live long anyway. I don't know why he died. But he did die. Uh, his blue beam, which he said was he got from a NASA insider, N-A-S-A. How the hell is he talking to a NASA insider is beyond me. Yeah. Anyway, the blue beam event never happened. Since that time, it's morphed into all kinds of permutations. And now the most popular one you hear is the ET invasion. Uh, hmm. My phone may die. If my phone dies, call my cell. Okay? Okay. Do you have it? I, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think I have it here. I'll, 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 right away, because I'm afraid that this phone's not going to last much longer. Tim. Anyway, long story short, I think pulling off a blue beam scenario would be very difficult. You've got not only a world of, of skeptical scientists, but scientists who are really, truly hostile to the idea of extraterrestrials and UFOs. And unless you can get them either to roll over and believe this, I mean, most of them are not going to be like ordinary people who are just going to say, oh, my God, the aliens are here. <clears throat> hmm. uh, you're not going to have to kill them all, or you're going to have to somehow buy them all off. I, I see that as a very difficult, very difficult scenario to do. Yeah. Tell us about uh, what's up next for you. Uh, obviously, how often do you get hounded about Volume 3 of uh, UFOs in the National Security <laughs> State? Constantly? O only, only every week, many times. Well, the good news is I, I, I don't want to <clears throat> uh, talk about this too much because uh, it's going to get crazy for me, but that is the next project on my agenda. Uh, now, I do publish other books by other authors, and I've got uh, three coming up in the next month that are about to be released. One is by Dr. Bob, uh, excuse me, Dr. Bruce McAbee. Oh, nice. One is by uh, the, the Russian uh, researcher Paul Stonehill, a great oh. book on Russian, Russian underwater uh, USOs. Nice. And uh, one by... Uh, 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 a lady named Lori McDonald about if your house is haunted. This is a little a little different from the kind of thing that I normally do. It's a well-written book, so I'm, I'm publishing this. I've got those three coming out, and uh, but volume three of the National Security State series is my next big agenda hmm. item. 
<clears throat> and I think before the summer's out, I'm going to be deep back into it. I'm hoping 2015. I think it can be um, done and out in a little more than a year from now. That's that's my goal. Is it difficult writing a history book that sort of takes you up to the present? Because history, by its very nature, we really kind of don't learn much till much later on in time. So um, like Cotton Cat 22. You would think so, but but actually, um, I, I'm not really going to have a hard time uh, putting together the last five, ten years of this history. It doesn't mean that the judgment's going to be final. Uh, most likely, I mean, when you're looking at recent history, it's very easy uh, to miss the bigger picture, and that very likely can be the case with anything that I'm writing. It's a lot easier when you look back to, to have a, a much better perspective on things. So that, that's the danger. Um, and hopefully that will be corrected with future historians who look back at the period and make corrections on anything that I may have gotten wrong or may have misinterpreted. But in terms of getting the data, no, that, that's not going to be a problem at all. I'll, I'll, I have more than enough to work with to piece together a, a really good, uh, really good tapestry of the UFO reality of the last 20 years. Hmm. And I'm actually very excited about doing it. And I know there are a number of readers who are waiting for it, um, I'm waiting for it. I want it to be done and out. The funny thing is I was, uh, it would have been done easily by now, but I ended up writing two other books in the interim, uh, hmm. AD, After Disclosure, and UFOs for the 21st Century Mind, which let me just mention before we're done, that, that may be the favorite book I've ever written, uh, UFOs for the 21st Century Mind. It's a, it's a 500-page, completely fresh overview of the entire UFO phenomenon, not just the history from ancient aliens to today, a lot of the information in, in that book will appear in Volume 3 of National Security State in terms of the sightings, for example. There's a lot of up-to-date information there. But also the politics. There's a lot of political analysis that's important. There's a lot of scientific analysis that I had never done in any previous work before. But um, the easy science connected to the UFO phenomenon was maybe my favorite chapter of the whole book. I, in other words, everything that I consider important about the UFO subject is how I created this book. Hmm. And it, it hangs together well. I think it's some of the best writing I ever did. I think it's some of the best thinking I've, I've done on this subject. It's my best attempt to understand the totality of this phenomenon we call UFOs. And, um, nice. you know, it took me two years to write it, and I'm, uh, absolutely, I'm so glad that I did. It was one of the best exercises I could have done. Awesome, awesome. And folks so, can find uh, out more at richarddolanpress.com, right? Yeah, Absolutely. I'm looking on there. And that now. website, by the that, yeah, that site, I'm I'm overhauling it right now. You're not seeing the new site, but hopefully we. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at some of these. These look like good books here. Uh, Chase Chase Klotz, uh, Admissible. This one sounds really good. Surrounded by Enemies uh, by Bryce Abel. That sounds really good. Yeah. Now that that book, I'm not publishing. I put that up as a favorite uh, advice because I wanted because he's my former co-author for AD. But yeah, that's a great book. That's a, a, a what if what if JFK had survived. The assassination attempt at Dallas. So, speaking engagements, you uh, you got yeah, a couple of plugos so, again. Yeah, I'll be at I'll be at the, the Joshua Tree, California, for Contact in the Desert. That's uh, August eighth, ninth, and tenth, uh, just a month from now. I'll be the MC at the annual Exeter UFO Festival. That's in Exeter, New Hampshire. Nice. On August thirtieth, and that's the very end of August. I was just wondering, are you going to be there, Tim? I'm going to try and make the trip up. I'm going to see if I can if I can get the time off and, and get up there and see yeah. you again. It'll be great. It'll be uh, good to reconnect. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I'll be at Exeter, and then uh, following that, later in September, I'll be um, I'll be going to the UK for the annual Exopolitics Conference, which is up near Leeds, a uh, little town called Huddersfield. That's uh, late September, uh, I think September 24th, around there. And then I've come back, and I'm doing in the early first weekend of October, I think October 4th or so, the Paradigm Symposium in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Nice. Nice. And then I have one more thing on the agenda after that. That's, uh, I think, October 17th or so at Tinley Park, Illinois, for my friend Sam Aranto. Uh He's got what's called the Heartland UFO Conference. I'll be doing that. Awesome. Sounds good. So you got a, a full slate here. Indeed. And when I'm not traveling, I'm writing and researching and doing everything else I have to do to survive. Yeah, and you got the show Monday nights on KGRA, so make sure we get that plug right. in as well. Absolutely. Yeah, the Richard Dolan Show. And the new book is UFOs for the 21st Century Mind. Also, folks, check out UFOs in the National Security State, Volume 1, as well as Volume 2, and AD After Disclosure, which Rich co-wrote with Bryce Zabel. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, Rich. I really do appreciate it. Uh, nice little afternoon chat got me out of the heat in a big way, and uh, I, I really just I a fascinating it. conversation. So thank you so much. Oh, I, I enjoyed it very much, Tim. It was great talking with you, as always. Absolutely. It won't be another four years till we have you on again, I promise. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. And thanks to all the folks listening in the uh, chat room and who tuned in live this afternoon. Much appreciated. Record-breaking uh, turnout in the chat room. So big thanks to all those folks. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. Pretty cool stuff. Uh, I was. Uh, you never know what's going to work here, but the two in the afternoon, it was like, I think we got a lot of uh, UK listeners and a lot of American listeners at the same time. So I'm going to let you get going, Rich, and then I'll throw my plugs in at the end. So thank you once again for coming on the show. RichardDolanPress.com is the website. Check it out, folks, and hopefully I'll be seeing you soon, Rich. Yeah, I would love that. Have a good day. All right, take care, Tim. Bye. And on that note, let me throw in the plugs here, folks. If you're listening to this on blog, talk, radio, and you have no idea who we are, we are Banal of America. You can find out more from us at banalofamerica.com. Pretty simple, all one word, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. You can also find us on Facebook. Just punch in Banal of America. That will bring up the page. That's where you can find out a whole bunch of stuff about the program and interact with other listeners and me. Post your thoughts on the show there. What you're listening to was a two-hour program here with Rich Dolan. It came to you absolutely free, but Blog Talk does cost me money, my friends, and so does hosting all of this massive archive of programs on the Internet. So if you could help us out, that would be great. You can do so by making a donation via PayPal. Just head on over to Banal of America and click the PayPal button. If you don't trust the Internet and you want to make a snail mail donation, feel free to mail it off to the P.O. Box, and that is Tim Benall, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass., 01866, and you can find the complete address at Benall of America right next to the PayPal button. You waited a month to hear from me since the last edition of the show with Tyler Cochon to today's episode with Rich Dolan. Thankfully, you will not have to wait much longer to hear the next edition of the program coming at you on Thursday, July 17th. We're going to be welcoming back to the show the crackpot historian himself, Adam Gorightly, who will be talking about his new book, Historia Discordia, The Origins of the Discordian Society. 
And anyone who's listened to the program with Adam Go Rightly in the past knows that it will be a raucous affair. You can tune into that one live Thursday, July 17th at 9, let me see here, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And we'll have all the information up about that at Benal of America very, very soon. On that note, thanks once again to Rich Dolan for coming on the show. Thanks to all the folks who tuned in live. And, of course, thanks to all the folks who are tuning in right now on the podcast. Until next time, my friends, thank you for listening. This is Tim Benal signing off. Yeah.